What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. Uh, We usually talk to Matt Harris. He is the uh, co-host of the podcast, The Murdoch Family Murders, Impact of Influence, and uh, the court was out to lunch, resuming at 2.15, and so uh, it is first come, first serve uh, at the uh, courthouse down there. There are so many people that want to get in, and so I suspect he's waiting in line. So what usually happens is when I call him at 2 o'clock, if he he can do it. Okay. Uh, Wait, wait. Hang on a second. All right. Okay. Um, don't know what that was. Uh, if he can do it, if Matt can join us, then he usually picks up. But if he can't, then I assume he's waiting in line or he's back in court because you got to. Uh, you're not allowed to bring a phone into the courthouse, so he probably ditched the phone and uh, is waiting in line. So we don't have Matt, but man, I've got an audio clip you got to listen to <laughs> from this morning. Holy smokes! Okay, so. Uh, I will. I, let's see if I can address this. Also, I got a message uh, on the Twitter machine. It's a Pete tweet. It says Pete, would you mind asking Matt Harris why the prosecution in the Murdoch trial seems to be so focused on and interested in the dynamics of hog hunting on these rural South Carolina properties? I'm not getting the relevance. So this is something that came up when they were discussing um, the use of the firearms on the property and. Uh, it came out that in, uh, the, I forget who it was that was testifying, but I, my suspicion here is that it's meant to, uh, to address, uh, earlier testimony talking about, uh, that the hogs don't come out, uh, during the daytime, they sleep in the swamp or something like that. And there was a comment made about that and what kind of weaponry you would use and, you know, why it would be likely that those weapons would be in the vehicle while Alec and Paul are driving around the property before the murders, right? So earlier in the day, Alec Murdoch and his son, Paul, are driving around looking at the trees. Paul shoots the video, the Snapchat video, and it shows Alec standing next to one of these trees and it keeps wilting over and Paul's laughing and he sent it out onto the Snapchat and that was, I think, I don't remember the time on it, but it was somewhere around like 5 o'clock or so. And that's where Alec is seen wearing the khaki sh- uh, the uh, khaki pants and a blue or sea foam. Not sure what color you see. Is it a white dress or blue dress? But a uh, button-down shirt, which he is not wearing when police arrive. He's in a different outfit, right? So the changing of the clothes. So... The suggestion, I suspect, where they're going with that, because Alec made a comment, somebody made a comment about uh, they were going out and looking uh, uh, at the property. Part of it was to inspect uh, the fields and the the food plots and where the deer eat off of and the duck pond and these trees. And they also were looking for signs of hogs because hogs are a nuisance and Everybody, like, it's open season on hogs out there. Feral hogs, those things are nasty, and they're, I mean, they're terrible for the uh, environment. And so they've, they've, they've exploded in population all over the southeast. And so 
they're uh, so when you're riding around the property, you see hogs, you kill them. Like that's it. Everybody just just murdering hogs all the time. Well, what that indicates then is if Paul and Alec are driving around looking for signs or damage from hogs, do you think they might have two weapons with them? Makes sense to me, right? I suspect that's what they're going to try to argue. Um, and so that, and so to answer that question, so it starts off this morning. How much time do I have? Okay, I can play this. Good. All right. So here is the. Uh, this is Ronnie Crosby. He is a former law partner. So what happened is the defense rested, right? Uh, they called some experts to testify that essentially they're they're going with a two shooter theory, and uh, they had two ex uh, two like a forensic pathologist come in. I'll go over some of this in a minute. And so they're laying out the argument that. Uh, uh, there, there were two shooters and that the uh, the state medical examiner uh, didn't do a thorough enough job on the autopsy. So then defense rests, prosecution comes back, and they now get to rebut. They get to put up some extra witnesses or bring back some old ones, and that's what they did. And this is Ronnie Crosby. Have you had to come out of pocket? Ronnie Crosby, sorry, is being cross-examined now by Dick Harputlian, the defense attorney for Alec Murdoch. I'll just leave it there. Pocket to pay back the money he stole. Yes, and if how, you, how much? I, I, don't tell me you don't know. Well, we're still counting, Mr. Hartboot. Well, how much have you paid so far? We have had to uh, borrow millions to pay back. No, how much have you had to come out of pocket? Well, when you borrow it, you got to pay it back, and I couldn't tell you how much has exactly been paid back uh, as of we sit here today. But yes, and and if you're implying that I would come in here and somehow shade truth in any way because of that, that's I would take high offense with that, Mr. Hartpool. Well, concerned about your high offense? Are you angry at him for stealing your money? I have no feeling one way or the you other. Don't have any feeling about Alec Murdoch betraying you and stealing your money? You're, I admire you. I don't know that I could look beyond that. Objection, Your Honor. Sustained. There's not a question the jury is to disregard the argument. You are not angry with Alec Murdoch? I have had anger with him, extreme anger, Mr. Hart Putlin, because of what he did to my law firm, my partners, my client, his, his clients, our clients, what he did to his family, what he's did to so many people. Yes, I experienced a lot of anger. And but you anger can't walk around with anger. You have to find a way to deal with it and move forward. And I have done that. And if you suggest you are dead wrong, if you think I've come in here and told this jury something because of money, when we, we're talking about two people who were brutally murdered, then you're, you're, you're headed in the wrong direction. Do you think he did it? Do I, don't have, I don't have an opinion. I don't have the benefit of the materials you have. Well, let me ask you this. You're angry with him, stole millions of dollars from your firm. You admit your firm's not even called the Murdoch firm anymore, right? It is not. I don't admit that I'm angry right now. I told you I've gotten away from that. I don't have any feelings because you can't walk around with anger. I have been very, very angry about it because of what he's done. And he did it in a very callous way, a very deceitful way. And you carry no... I'm sorry, maybe I just saw some anger there. Were you angry just a moment ago? No, you keep trying to push a question and don't want to accept my answer, which is what it is. That you've just given your 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 zen, your nirvana, your whatever the... Your Honor, objection. 
Mr. Harpootlin, I came to the scene of these murders to support my partner. I was there. I saw things that hadn't even been talked about in this courtroom. I was there. I, I, I love Paul very much. I thought I knew who Alec was. I did not. And it's hard to, 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 to you might not understand, but it's just it's hard to, to, to walk around with, with anger and hard to even walk around with it when it's with somebody who you didn't know and didn't understand. So you, you, you might have, have been that way, but you know, I've got a function, I've got a family, I've got to move on with life. Were you aware that he went to rehab in 2017? I was not, really? other than what, what was said uh, by Alec in this courtroom. You never were aware he had a drug problem? I was unaware. Okay. Sort of. And, and, and if I would have been known, I would have tried to help him. You indicated that uh, he could be emotional in trying a case, correct? He, he could be. He, could, he was uh, theatric, much like his father and grandfather had a courtroom theatrics, uh, and, and he could be emotional. Any of your other partners that way? Johnny Parker? No, Johnny's quite the opposite. Johnny's very... Uh, Laconic, I believe, is the best yeah, way to Yeah, he, he doesn't show emotion. Who, any, nobody else in your firm was theatric or emotional? Not to Alex's uh, level. You don't know any other lawyers in the state that go to that level? You're asking me a question right now. I don't know. You might um, yourself. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what other <laughs> lawyers do. I'm usually uh, trying cases against defense attorneys, so I don't. I don't get to see plaintiffs' lawyers anymore. All right, so that's him going to Ronnie Crosby. Says, I don't know. You maybe. You may be the theatrical one. I find it. I don't think. Uh, I don't think Harpootlian did a good job with uh, with Ronnie Crosby. Um. Crosby was brought on there to talk about, and, and he did, he talked about uh, hog hunting and, and that sort of thing. He, this was one of the law partners, because the state's coming up and trying to rebut some of the testimony that came from Alec Murdoch, right? Because Alec got to be on the stand, say all these things, so now the state gets to come back and say, okay, well, Alec said X, here's not X, right? Here's a, here's a counter-argument. I think where they're going with this, we shall see, I think where they're going is they're going to say that the guns were with them uh, at the time because they had been going around the property, and if you're driving around the property, you've got the guns. And what Harputlian was suggesting, now remember, Ronnie Crosby's a lawyer, and what Harputlian was accusing him of, right, was, was telling lies under oath as an officer of the court because he was, you know, angry at Alec for stealing all the money. And Ronnie did not like it. <laughs> he did not like it one bit. Uh, I mean, accusing a lawyer of doing something like that, like, what do you think, he's like Alec Murdoch or something? That's, come on, man. Uh, let me see here. I thought I had an email. Yes, here. I had emails from, uh, who is this? Clay. Clay says, Pete. I love the breakdown of the Murdoch trial. I can understand why some folks get bent when you spend the better part of an hour talking about the details. Let's face it, not everybody is capable of active listening and may choose to act out instead of attempting to hone that skill. 
You may be interested to know that I have inserted myself into the closing of this trial by asking my Magic 8-Ball two specific questions about the case. Number one, did Alex Murdoch murder his wife and son? Magic 8-Ball's answer is, ask again later. And the second question, will Alec Murdoch be convicted of murdering his wife and son? Magic 8-Ball answers, all signs point to yes. So there you go. Wait, and then we have an update from Clay on the Magic 8-Ball. The question of whether Alex killed Maggie and Paul, the Magic 8-Ball said, ask again later, so he did. And now he says, the Magic 8-Ball answered, it is unclear. Oh, what? What was the point of this? And then he asked the Magic 8-Ball, did somebody else besides Alex kill Maggie and Paul? And the answer is, quote, it is decidedly so. <gasps> I then asked, will Alec go to jail for the murders of Paul and Maggie? And the answer was, it shall be. The plot thickens. Thank you, Clay. All righty, so the defense. I mentioned yesterday they had their... Uh, they they rested, but they had their experts up. The first was a guy named Dr. Jonathan Eisenstadt. He specializes in forensic pathology. He investigates uh, the cause and manner of someone's death. He's a Georgia-based doctor, went to the same school as the prosecutor's uh, witness, who was the medical examiner, Dr. Ellen Reamer, uh, and she did the autopsy. Eisenstadt previously worked as a pathologist in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's Medical Examiner Office, he worked his way up to become the state's chief ME. He performed thousands of autopsies. And he said he disagreed with a couple things. Number one, the Colleton County Coroner's uh, pegging of the time of death. He put his hands under the armpits of the deceased bodies. And, uh, if, and he said they were still warm, and so that's how he pegged it at about 9 o'clock. But that's a rough estimate. The tr- and Eisenstadt said that's not a valid method. If you're trying to determine a cause of death, or sorry, the time of death, uh, the better methodology is to use a thermometer, uh, and you uh, do it's a rectal temperature test and uh, ambient temperature as well. But, but the coroner didn't do that. Um, but I don't know how much value that has because we have all the cell phone records. That we, we know when the when the murders generally occurred. It's right around 9 o'clock. Uh, Eisenstadt agreed with Reamer's findings that, um, yeah, agreed with the findings about the first two fatal gunshot wounds into Maggie, but believes she suffered um, one of the wounds doubling over from the torso and that the final shot in her head, that that was a downward trajectory striking the left side. This differs from Reamer's findings, she believed Maggie's chest was hit before her chin. So what they're trying to what they're trying to line up here is that you had two different shooters, and so the autopsy that was done and Dr. Reamer's assessment of how the shots occurred, they're not accurate, and it's less believable there, or it's a reasonable doubt there that uh, that one person could have done it. And this is particularly true when you add in. The, the defense experts who testify about uh, the shotgun murder of Paul. And they're saying that it was a, that the, the second shot to his head, they're claiming it was a contact gunshot, meaning that the barrel, the end of the muzzle of the gun was up against the head. 
the top of the head, as if Paul was falling forward after being shot once on the side. He then falls forward, and there's a shotgun uh, put right up against his head and trigger pulled. And they point to some, you know, the the stippling patterns, and they're like, "Well, Reamer didn't shave the hair, and so this is the this is actually not the exit wound; it's the entry wound." And I can tell that by the pellet placements and whatever. So they're they're having this debate back and forth because then Reamer gets called back to the stand today, and she's like, "Yes, you know, I didn't X-ray the brain; I didn't need to. I knew the cause of death. I I did the autopsy. Like I had the bodies right here. I was able to." examine them up close so I knew this is the exit wound. I didn't need to shave the hair because it's obviously the exit wound. She talked about how, like, the injuries Paul sustained would have been way worse, and they were gruesome already, but they would have been way worse had it actually been the way that the other uh, expert says it occurred. So you got this battle of the experts. What does that mean for the jury? Hard to say, right? It's hard to say. that Maybe it's a wash, I don't know if it matters so much as to the direction of the the barrel of the gun when it was fired, whatever. I don't know if that if that somehow makes it more believable that there was a second shooter. We shall hear on closing arguments, which, by the way, could happen this week. They're they're going to take the trip to the uh, Moselle property. Apparently, they're looking to do that maybe tomorrow, um, which I don't expect to have any kind of an update then tomorrow. So all the anti Murdoch. Uh, folks, uh, you'll be happy to know, not going to cover probably much of the trial tomorrow. I don't plan to. Um, I have heard there's a friend of mine whose family is uh, going to a wedding down there, and they are staying at a hotel where Harputlian and his team have set up, and so now they may not be able to get in. <laughs> My God, what a mess. What a mess. Uh, all righty. So there's your update from the, uh, from the Murdoch case. I have an update on another case, though. This is uh, from Charlotte. The Kim Thomas murder, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. And David's called one of those numbers, and he, he joins us now. Hello, David. What's going on? Hey. Hello, Mr. Wordsmith. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> so I would like for you to um, discuss the, the difference in time on, on the two cell phones. So obviously, one cell phone, and I'll, I'll use the term died. Okay. I apologize, but... You know, one cell phone went dead, and then shortly thereafter, the other cell phone went dead. Do you happen to know about how much of a gap there was? So when you say when... in the trial? Right. So, okay. So when you say went dead, do you mean the batteries died, or do you mean that... No, no, no. Like, you know, it stopped moving. It's not counting steps. Right. Um, It's not changing location anymore. Right. I believe the last last, uh, cell phone movements occurred right as Alex was... Like, when Alex called... Maggie's phone, there were orientation changes, the backlight came on, that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. when, but it never opened again. The last time it ever opened and the messages never got read, all of that stuff, that was, uh, but that was within this, so Alec was down at the, at the kennels at like 845, right, and then he goes back up, and it was within that next 15 minutes where the phones never unlock again. And the two phones pretty much unlocked around the exact same time or was there a yeah because remember at 844 paul was shooting the video right of the dog in the in the in the pen right and that's what got that's what captured alex voice and so Mm -hmm. we know he was using the phone at that moment but then his battery his battery did die 
eventually. His battery did eventually, because it was only at like 2% or something like that when he shot that video. Um, Maggie's phone, the battery uh, did not die until it was like later on. They found her phone, and this actually came out yesterday too. I, I, I did not mention this, but John Marvin Murdoch, Alex's brother, uh, he talked. He got on the stand yesterday. He was talking about how essentially Sled wasn't doing a good job on their investigation and how they found her phone because of the Find My Friend app or whatever that Buster had on the phone, and they found the mom's phone. They were like, it's right over there. It's like half a mile up the road, and they're like, let's go get it. And Sled was like, oh, no, we got we got technology that's coming to find it. And so they were, like, hesitant to go get it for some reason, but whatever. Um, so the But the timing of the, the phone stopped. Uh, they stopped moving. Except Maggie's did, I think there were like 58 steps then that occurred afterwards or something. And, and the suggestion there is that somebody else may have had her phone at that point. And was getting ready to go ditch it. Right. Because the phone won't register steps, according to the guys they had testify from like, I don't remember, the, the Verizon or maybe the FBI people. Somebody, they were like, it's not going to measure steps when it's in a car. So if you have if you're riding in a vehicle with the phone and even if you're bouncing around and moving, it's not going to record those as steps. So that that's the idea. And then you also have Alec taking hundreds of steps in a very short period of time where he says he was getting ready to leave to go to his mom's house. And it was like four minutes and there was like 200 something steps. And what the prosecution is is intimating there without actually proving is they're saying well that was him you know rushing around cleaning up and disposing of the weapons or whatever after after doing the murders well 200 steps in four minutes you know especially when you're at mom's house that's a lot right well this was he was still up at the house this would have been after he says he woke up from his nap and then got ready to go to his mom's so at this point either his wife and son have been murdered and he didn't know because he didn't hear the gunshots um, or they had stopped uh, using their phones, are still down at the kennels, and then he's rushing around in the house up there and then gets in the car and, and drives away after calling Maggie's phone. But when he calls Maggie's phone, she doesn't answer it, but there is orientation movement on the phone at that time. And so the suggestion there is that he may have had... Um, he may have had her phone or somebody else had the phone and he's calling it or something. Who knows? I, they, they haven't explained the significance of that yet to, for, to my satisfaction. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for, yeah, yeah. Uh, for talking with me. I appreciate it. I'm going to have to let you go because I'm actually kind of breaking up. Okay. No problem, David. I appreciate the call, sir. Yeah. Like the, I, I got to believe that both the defense and the state I have to believe that they are going to do a much better job. I mean, the defense already did, I think, a much better job of giving us the visuals of um, of the of the the property of where the victims were. Like they did the whole computer animated thing, right? With the with the the uh, the people walking around and stuff, and showing us the trajectories. They did a much better job so far. The the state just is giving us. You know, they give us like some overhead. Uh, aerial photos and they they did some like you know some markings on a map and sort of stuff and then they give you all of these spreadsheets of times and the jurors aren't taking notes here and so like there's there's a fear that they've they've overloaded too much they better do a much better job of tying this thing together of showing people 
what it is that they are actually alleging occurred and then getting beyond the reasonable doubt standard. I understand like today, like they were talking with Ronnie Crosby um, about, you know, Alex lying and about his ability to perform in front of a jury, the manufacturing of the tears. Cause look there, I've been every time I've been watching every single time there is a discussion of, or photos of Maggie and Paul's death. Alec is a weeping, blubbering mess every single time. Now, if he's innocent, you can say, okay, well, that, that makes some bit of sense, right? It's, this is traumatic, and every time he's, he even hears about it, he just goes to pieces. He, he's right back there at the scene, PTSD, right? He's, he's suffering trauma and all this. But if he didn't do it, or sorry, if he did do it, then this is what this would play to the state's favor, right? They're saying this guy is manufacturing this like on cue. Every time this stuff comes on, he he breaks down and cries like this because he knows this is the emotion that sells because of all his experience as a personal injury trial attorney and getting these big settlements for people who have been harmed. And he was always channel, uh, channeling those emotions and those theatrics, that performance, into big settlements, I would say for his clients, but let's be honest, he was taking them for himself. So, um, so there, so there's that. So they're, they're, they're trying to button up as much as both sides, try to fill the holes where they can. Um, and as I said yesterday, I think that's why they put Murdoch on the stands because they couldn't, they could not address that kennel video any other way. And that was the most damning piece of evidence that I've seen because he lied about it for so long. He lied about it for so long. He, and I don't even know when he told his lawyers about it. I wonder if they were surprised to learn about it. I got to believe he would have told them, but maybe he didn't tell them either. Who knows? All right, we have a development in a Charlotte case, the Kim Thomas murder case. Charlotte Observer reporting that we may be a step closer to finding out maybe who killed Kim Thomas, this 33-year-old Charlotte murder mystery. We may get new information at some point. Well, it seems like the family is going to because a Mecklenburg County judge ordered Charlotte Mecklenburg police to release all completed DNA testing in that case. For now, the public's not going to be allowed to see it. Superior Court Judge George Bell limited the release of the DNA uh, results to the extended family and the attorneys of Kim Thomas. Under Bell's order, the general public won't get access until December 31. The judge's decision came in response to a highly unusual legal move by veteran Charlotte defense attorney David Rudolph, who, side note, also represented Ray Carruth and also represented Michael Peterson of the uh, the Netflix The Staircase uh, film that was shot, right? The, the author who was uh, accused of uh, pushing his wife down the stairs, murdering his wife. Remember that? Um, Rudolph believes the new information will exonerate Kim Thomas's ex-husband, or I should say ex-husband, was her husband, former husband, uh, Ed Friedland, Dr. Ed Friedland. He was the, Rudolph has been on this case for 33 years. July 27, 1990, Cotswold neighborhood. Kim Thomas, found dead, 
stabbed, her throat slashed multiple times. Ed Friedland, uh, her husband, doctor, he's a kidney specialist, and uh, she was an activist, uh, leadership role in the local chapter of the National Organization of Women. Um, they had a house just off of Wendover Road, and this actually ties to the uh, uh, the staffing issue. In a book called Charlotte True Crime Stories, Notorious Cases from Fraud to Serial Killing, Kathy Pickens is the author. She wrote about, according to the Charlotte Observer reporter Elizabeth Leland, this was Charlotte's 54th homicide in 1990. Uh, it would be a high, one of the high watermarks in homicides at 97 by the end of the year. And at the time of Kim Thomas's murder, the police department had only eight homicide investigators. Eight. To investigate 97 murders. This is what staffing problems uh, will lead to, right? Homicides are not going to get solved. This is one of the it's one of the challenges. All right, so Kim Thomas is found murdered, and uh, according to Ed Friedland's lawyer, David Rudolph, police initially considered a guy named Marion Gales as a serious suspect. Marion Gales was sort of this, he lived, you know, uh, another neighborhood over, and uh, he was sort of a handyman, and apparently he had done some work at the house. And Rudolph says that Gales was a suspect, but that changed when detectives got a tip that at the time of Kim Thomas's murder, Ed Friedland was involved in a two-year affair with a nurse. And Rudolph says that turned the police around. They then ignored Marion Gales, and they have mishandled the case ever since. This is what Rudolph told the Charlotte Observer in December. He said, having an affair doesn't make you a murderer. They all had this uh, evidence against Gales. They were pursuing that evidence, and then they just stopped. So Friedland uh, went to... Uh, Friedland was charged, and he went to trial. And four years, um, this would have been 1994, formally charged. In 1995, at a pretrial hearing, Dr. Michael Baden, or Baden, B-A-D-E-N, you've probably seen him. He's a former New York City medical examiner, one of the star power names in the forensic pathology world. He appeared in a Charlotte court testifying as to the time of Kim's death. This was a key element because Friedland said he had left at 7.45 or 8 o'clock to go to work. Coworkers corroborated when he arrived at the office. And if she died before 7.30, he was there when she died. And if she died later, he couldn't have done it. The Mecklenburg County Medical Examiner, Dr. Michael Sullivan, had performed the autopsy and testified that she likely died in the early morning. Dr. Bodden's testimony for the prosecution was that in... It was, quote, much more likely she died before 7.30 that morning in arguing that the uh, the criminal case should be dismissed. Defense attorney David Rudolph called the test uh, the potassium levels in her retina used by Dr. Bodden voodoo evidence. The judge listened to the points made by both sides, then issued his ruling. The standard for medical testimony in North Carolina is to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Bodden was not able to say that he was reasonably certain, just that it was more likely the judge ruled that wasn't enough to meet the burden of proof. And without that, nailing down the time of death, the DA's office dropped the charges. And what did that mean then? Dr. Friedland, now 66, uh, has never been uh, recharged. Uh, 
but there's always been this cloud over him. Now, David Rudolph uh, sued Marion Gales, and they actually won um, in a civil litigation suit millions of dollars. Gales can't repay it. He has no money. Oh, and by the way, he's in prison for murdering another woman several years later. And so what they are, uh, they are now going to get access to is the DNA results that Rudolph and Friedland, and I'm assuming the Thomas family and the extended family, uh, they all hope that this might actually point to who actually committed the murder. If there was DNA evidence on the body, we don't know where this DNA evidence was collected from. We don't know what it is or whatever, Like, but apparently it exists and CMPD did not want to turn it over. They were like, this is still an ongoing investigation. And so, like, there's a 33-year-old case here. I understand there's no statute of limitations on murder, but it's the DNA. And if it's going to clear Dr. Friedland, or it has the potential to incriminate Marion Gales, or somebody else for that matter, well, the judge is going to let the family see it. And then I guess it'll go public at the end of the year. I wonder if the family, I wonder if Rudolph is allowed to announce the results or if they have to keep quiet about it all. We shall see. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.